PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practice since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. Welcome to the PTJ Podcast, Are All Falls Equal? Screening Costs and Policymaking. In this discussion, authors Dr. Timothy Hankey and Dr. Brendan Stubbs join moderator Kate Mangione to discuss the take-home messages of their recent PTJ articles, Management of Falls in Community Dwelling Older Adults, Clinical Guidelines Statement from the Academy of Geriatric Physical Therapy of the American Physical Therapy Association, and What Works to Prevent Falls in Community Dwelling Older Adults, Umbrella Review of Meta-Analyses of Randomized Control Trials. And now, our moderator. So I'm Dr. Kate Mangione. I'm a professor of physical therapy at Arcadia University in Glenside, Pennsylvania. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing two physical therapists, one from the UK, Dr. Brendan Stubbs, who is the head physiotherapist for Morsley Hospital, the National Health Service, who's currently doing his postdoc at King's College in London. And our other guest is Dr. Tim Hankey, who is at Midwestern University at the Downers Grove, Illinois program, and he is, um, has his areas of expertise in balance and falls in older adults. So welcome, gentlemen, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Um, I would like you both to just start off, and Brendan, I'll ask you to start, to just talk a little bit about uh, your study, an overview of what you did and what you found, please. Thank you so much for the introduction and in welcoming me to the program Well, my study was an umbrella review, so it was a systematic review of systematic reviews of meta-analyses, only focusing on on those that included randomized controlled trials. So it was just a a real systematic overview of the top tier of evidence to say what what does work and what doesn't work to prevent falls. There's There's an abundance of research which has addressed this question and these have been summarized in numerous meta-analysis and several different interventions have been developed and this was really an attempt to systematically review and appraise the meta-analysis that had considered randomized control trials to say what works and what doesn't work to prevent falls in older adults in the community. So we searched major electronic databases and we only considered meta-analysis that had pulled three or more randomized control trials considering any intervention to prevent falls in, in older adults with a mean age over 60. And what we found through that process was 16 individual meta-analyses. And across those 16 meta-analyses, we found 47 pooled analyses were included. Um, the methodological quality of the included meta-analysis was generally pretty good. What we did find within that was that exercise was the most commonly investigated intervention to prevent falls, and 13 out of 14 pooled meta-analysis uh, results across seven individual meta-analyses found that exercise was effective in reducing falls. 
We also considered vitamin D supplementation, which was considered across seven different meta-analyses, and we found evidence to suggest that vitamin D may potentially be useful, although the evidence isn't quite clear across numerous meta-analyses. And we also considered environmental interventions, and three meta-analyses considered this, and there is potential across those, and two Meta-analysis considered surgical interventions and there is potential within that. And then there's another big component which is the multifactorial interventions. And again, we found good evidence across six meta-analysis, multifactorial interventions reduce falls. So overall, exercise really demonstrates a positive influence on reducing the risk, odds and rate of falls. And of course, exercise is included in other types of interventions, such as multifactorial interventions. But it really does place physical therapists in a strong place to be right at the centre of preventing falls. And that's, in a nutshell, what we found. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was really a fascinating study. Obviously, happy to see the positive, strong effect of exercise, but also the conflicting evidence, if you will, for vitamin D and some other things. Because that's what it appears like when you read individual studies. It appears that each week something different comes out on vitamin D. So I believe your yeah. umbrella review held that up quite well. I'd like to switch over to Kim, and if you could, yours is again not extremely different, but you have a lot of different areas that you looked into. And I think if you could start off by defining what your your clinical practice statement is all about would be great. And please tell us about your study, please. Sure. Thank you very much. Back in around 2012, the Academy of Geriatric Physical Therapy assembled a core working group to participate in the development of evidence-based documents. And through the leadership and the membership, several hot topics were developed and identified. And the first was the problem of falls in community-dwelling older persons. So in the process of taking systematic reviews, individual research studies, and synthesizing them into an evidence-based document that can be used to assist in decision-making, one of the strategies is to determine if a clinical practice guidelines already exist. And so the core working group knew that several clinical practice guidelines on falls and community-dwelling older persons already did exist, and so it behooved us to appraise and to identify the data within those guidelines before trying to develop a guideline ourselves. So there are different kinds of evidence-based documents, and of course, clinical practice guidelines provide recommendations, but clinical guidance statements are appraisals and reviews and syntheses of clinical practice guidelines that are already in existence. So that's what we set out to do, and in the process of reviewing those guidelines, we also constructed a gap analysis specifically to physical therapy and, and what we learn from those guidelines for physical therapy. We searched 11 clinical practice guideline databases, um, and our search uh, revealed and recovered approximately 4,000 potential evidence-based documents that met a fairly broad inclusion criteria. We were looking for these kinds of documents from 2000 to 2013 on falls and community-dwelling older persons. And of those, we found five that met that criteria. So we critically appraised those five clinical practice guidelines using the agree-to tool, and three were recommended for use. Since each clinical practice guideline had different definitions 
and criteria for recommendations and levels of evidence used, we synthesized the recommendations, their strengths, the results, and the levels of evidence, and thus came up with our own clinical guidance statement recommendations for physical therapists. These categories were generally in the categories of screening, assessment, and interventions. Before I briefly describe what we found in those areas, I uh, just want to tell a little bit more about the methodology. Uh, this is a systematic uh, methodology, and there were a number of drafts and external reviews as part of the drafting of the recommendations. There were two groups that participated in this external review, a consulting group that included physical therapists, geriatricians, exercise physiologists, as well as two lay people representing the population of community-dwelling older persons, and an external review group that included geriatric clinical specialists, geriatrician, policy maker, as well as exercise specialists. Finally, a third draft after all of those reviews and integration of the feedback and comments was available for public comment. In the end, we summarized the screening assessment and intervention recommendations from the three clinical practice guidelines and, as I said, synthesized and provided clinical guidance statement recommendations. Briefly, we found that there was a lot of similarities between the three guidelines that we used. In the area of screening, all suggested that older adults should be screened at least once per year and our clinical guidance statement screening recommendation is that physical therapists should routinely ask older adult patients if they have fallen in the previous 12 months. Context and history of those falls should be ascertained and at least one question about patients' perception of difficulty with balance or walking should be included as well. A positive screen is when either of the following conditions is found. A patient reports multiple falls regardless of balance and gait impairments, or the patient reports one fall and a balance or gait impairment is observed. And the purpose of this screening is really to identify uh, general risk, but to also determine if a more formal assessment is required. In terms of assessment, we concluded, based on the clinical practice guidelines and their recommendations, that physical therapists should provide an individualized assessment within the scope of PT practice that contributes to a multifactorial assessment of falls and fall risk. There were a number of categories that we included um, based on the, uh, the three clinical practice guidelines, areas of medication review, medical history, and common body structure and function and activity uh, limitation and environmental factor categories including strength, balance, gait, footwear, environmental hazards, cognition, neurologic and cardiac function, vision and urinary incontinence uh, raised to the level of attention in those guidelines and in our recommendation on assessment. Finally, in terms of the intervention recommendation, we tailored our clinical guidance statement recommendation specifically to physical therapy. The clinical practice guidelines were more general because they were written primarily without a specific focus to physical therapy, but our guidance statement recommendation was 
physical therapist must provide individualized interventions that address all positive risk factors within the scope of PT practice. And specifically, we had found strong and high-graded recommendation with high levels of evidence in strength training, individually prescribed and monitored, uh, balance training, gait training, correction of environmental hazards, and correction of footwear and structural impairments. Now, we did, as a part of this process, also determine quite a few gaps across these areas. And I suspect as we move forward in the podcast today, we'll touch on some of those with respect to screening, examination tools, multifactorial assessment and coordination of care, and what exactly strength training, balance training, and other kinds of interventions really mean specifically on the intervention side. Thank you very much. So when I kind of look at these two really wonderful pieces of literature together, I see that Brendan has come out and says, oh, there's tons of evidence, multiple, multiple systematic reviewing exercise. And then Tim really has a lot of detail about the kind of exercise, still with lots of questions, as he's alluded to, so we know we have to do strength and balance and gait training and things like that. And, um, and so those are the areas that we can really jump in on. I thought the evidence was not quite as strong, and probably for good reason, because it's hard to test assessment tools in some ways. Well, what were some of the assessment and screening ideas? And I really wanted to have us think about, because when you talked about all of the different assessment things, when we look at medication review, medical history, looking at strength, balance, gait, all of this as assessment, this is what we typically do as physical therapists anyway. And so what is the goal, do you think, and of screening and assessment? Is it to identify fall risk, or is it to identify areas that the evidence-based you know, multi-component exercise intervention should address. What is the goal of this? It's since we're pulling it out as something for falls only, what's the real goal of doing all of this assessment? The goal of screening is to identify risk and to identify whether or not a formal multifactorial assessment is needed. On the other hand, the assessment is really to identify the impairments and activity limitations that are thought to be correlated and directly related to the problem of falling so that interventions can be uh, addressed specifically to those uh, impairments and, and limitations. So once we get through the two screening items, asking someone if they've fallen and observing them, asking them a question if they have balance problems, if they perceive themselves to have balance problems, or observing them and noting a balance problem, at that point, we've either established risk or not risk kind of things, what you're talking about. And then from there, then we really do the more detailed assessment to figure out what it is that we need to intervene upon. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Correct, yes. Uh, the challenge really in from that screening to assessment transition is determining the extent to which, one, they need intervention, and of course, the assessment is going to provide that, and two, somewhat level of fall risk, and this is a big challenge. So for us, it, it really comes down to whether or not they need to proceed in this process. And as I said before, a, a positive screen is one where multiple falls are identified regardless of balance and gait impairments. And, and, one, uh, and on the other hand, one fall with a balance or gait impairment. Now, of course, the challenge is, is screening for balance and gait impairment. None of the clinical practice guidelines that we reviewed recommended a specific test or measure, while 
several offered examples, such as the timed up and go, um, the Berg bound scale, the Tinetti scale, these kinds of things. But no one measure rose to a level of do this in order to screen for balance and gait impairment. So I believe that's a gap in the literature and one that re requires additional attention. I would probably argue, though, that lots of physical therapists who I know, and when we bring them into lab, they talk about doing a balance assessment as part of their assessment. And because based on a Berg score of 45, the person is now at risk of falls, which is a little bit different than what you're talking about with the screening process. And so is your group really recommending that, you know, this idea of falls risk or not or level of falls risk, which we'll talk about in a minute, we should pretty much have that done by the screening assessment piece. And then we're going to be moving on because I think that's a little different than what we see a lot of times in practice. Sure, yes. So the screen is a relatively blunt instrument, right? It's going to send us to further assessment or it's going to say, you know, we think we're pro you're probably doing pretty good and you could probably do well with just some community programming or general physical activity that, to help continue along the path that you're on. But yes, the assessment from the balance and, and gait side would require some formal testing, a merging of probably multiple tests and measures to make a good decision about whether or not the person is a certain level of risk or balance impairment. Those things aren't mutually the same. But also then what to do about that. What does the test or measure tell us with respect to how to treat that balance impairment if one sure. exists? Okay, let me move us into that area then. Let's talk about risk. And Brendan, you had, I was so thankful that in your paper you talked about rate ratio of risk versus odds ratios. And I kept looking at that every time I looked at one of the numbers. And so how do we, and how do you think about falls risk? Are we thinking about risk in at risk, not at risk? Are we thinking about risk as small, medium, large? Or is it a continuous scale where it's from zero to, you know, whatever, 100% risk? And is it risk that we're interested in? Because that's clearly what's in the literature. Or is it rate of falls? Is it the number of actual falls? I wonder, Brendan, if you could start us on a discussion of some of that. Clearly, very important questions. And falls by their very nature as Tim alluded to, are multifactorial in their nature, is often it's multiple causes that can lead to an individual being you know, at risk of falling and also for going on to fall. And I think just as a caveat, just to add on to Tim's very eloquent um, explanation of the guidelines there they're setting out, is that there are many, many risk factors that have been associated or indicated as, as predicting a risk factor for falls. I mean, just about any medication you could possibly think of has been associated with an increased risk of falls, you know, whether it be um, antidepressant medication, whether it be analgesic medication. There are many, many risk factors. So it can get quite complex, and Tim kept referring us back to, you know, within the framework of a physical therapist practice, which was really helpful. So I'd just very much like to say that it was you know, the best indicator consistently. And when you look at DeAndrea's paper in 2010, who looks at all of the risk factors for prediction of future falls, consistently out on top was, um, you know, have you fallen in the past 12 months? So that's a really good indicator if someone is at risk and is also more likely to fall in the future. Getting on to the, the question about risks and rate of falls, 
clearly if anybody is at risk of falls, then we would like them to be offered appropriate interventions to prevent them ultimately from falling. And identifying those most at risk enables us an opportunity to engage with that individual so we can reduce their risk and ultimately we want to prevent falls for the multiple reasons which Tim alluded to in his paper and I alluded to and which are well known among us that the falls can be you know, devastating to the individual and, and families and you know, many other health and societal costs. So clearly identifying people at risk is important but ultimately we want to prevent falls happening for the individual. I'd like to just follow up with addressing the risk factors. It seems that by targeting those, as Brendan mentioned, that you know, this is what we're trying to reduce, but the outcome ultimately is the reduction in falls or the, or the rate of falls. You know, it's a challenge to, to say how much a person is at risk, and we didn't really try to tackle that, although I think if you're going to try to look at interventions and specifically prescribe interventions for the older adult with a history of falling, you have to try to some way make a statement about how much at risk they are or their general functional status because, uh, you know, we find that a program for one older adult might not work the same as for a program for another older adult with different risk factors or, or levels of risk factors or comorbidities. One of the things that we did in the guidance statement is also sort of lay out the process in an algorithm. And the algorithm is consistent with and similar to what the CDC study program has done in terms of asking questions at the screening level, trying to determine some level of risk there, and then moving along into the multifactorial assessment and into interventions. And it's interesting to note that as the CDC study has evolved in their decision tree that they've tried to label levels of risk. Uh, for example, any older adult going through this, this process of screening, regardless of answering yes or no to the initial questions, is automatically at low risk according to their algorithm. And, and we would probably argue that as older adults age, given that age is a risk factor in and of itself, that there is some level of risk right from the start. But then trying to determine what uh, greater risk is, is it number of falls, is it injury or no injury, and the CDC algorithm has tried to tackle that a bit. But I think for physical therapists, the important thing is to try to understand through both the screening and the assessment the number of risk factors, the magnitude of the impairments identified that are associated with these, and then to target interventions accordingly. You know, you're both saying something that I'm, maybe it's very obvious to you, but I don't necessarily know that it's very obvious to everyone. You're both saying you're decreasing the number of risk factors, and I think that's exactly what physical therapists probably do. And I, but yet it kind of gets shorthanded, shortcut to just risk. We don't have those numbers, like with generalized risks, 30% risk, 70% risk. We really don't have those kinds of constructs in fall risk, but we do have risk factor numbers. And, and you can decrease someone's the number of risk factors from 7 to 2. And we would definitely say that would be a, I think, we would think that's a great 
outcome of an intervention. And I think maybe even policymakers would think that would be a great outcome. And then if we looked at risk factors, like you're both saying, it would be very obvious that the therapists are doing appropriate interventions that are targeted towards specific risk factors and decreasing the number thereof versus saying that they changed from a 45 Berg scale to a 50 Berg scale. Therefore, they're not at fault risk, which makes no sense, which we all know. They would really say that we've now increased their strength, therefore we eliminated the risk factor of decreased lower extremity strength. Again, I don't think people typically write about risk factors. They write about risk as if it's just yes or no. Yes, that's a good point. You know, in our review of the clinical practice guidelines, some of the things outside of the, the scope of PT practice, like cardiac pacing and cataract surgery, you know, were identified as significant interventions to reduce the number of risk factors, obviously changing the visual status, managing the cardiac condition, and as Brendan mentioned, the medication issue and polypharmacy, these sorts of things, you know, you can knock off uh, significant risk factors by those kinds of interventions. In physical therapy, our challenge, of course, is to modify some of the impairments and activity limitations that we see to levels of then taking that factor out of the equation. Sure, because a lot of those are just age-related changes, as you had said before as well. So we know that a lot of those things, a lot of those functions balance strength, gait speed will decline with aging typically, so it's kind of getting it back into the quote-unquote normal range that would be the more challenging kind of aspect. And again, it's not a one-for-one, that's the other thing. We know, as you all both alluded to, it's so multifactorial, it's not like you can change one thing, but if we can perhaps decrease part of Again, exercise, according to Brendan's study, really is very effective. And so what is it in this magic black box of exercise that is the most effective piece? And we as physical therapists will, I think, begin to label this out as we begin to address these impairments singly as well. Yeah, one of the great things about Brendan's work being much more current than the guidelines that we reviewed is that it really emphasized the strength of the data on doing exercise and what that meant and and that it's not just one component like strengthening and it was very heartening to see that with the more recent data. All right, let me change topics a little bit. I wanted to talk about the concept of are all falls equal? And and by this, I'm, I'm just going to give the example of cost. And as a hip fracture researcher, I can pretty much say when someone falls and breaks a hip, there's going to be the cost of surgery, the cost of hospitalization, the, post, the cost of post-acute care, home care, et cetera, et cetera. And you can estimate the cost of a hip fracture. Not exactly, but you can do that. But the cost of one fall is not always the cost of another fall, if we think about it. So my dad fell this morning, and he got up. All right, now he's a frequent faller. He'll fall very often, but there is no cost at this point to his falls because he and my mom know how to manage themselves to get up. And one of the papers, one of the systematic reviews that you mentioned, Brendan, in your article was by El Corey, and they examined the effects of exercise on the rate of injurious falls, falls resulting in medical care, falls causing serious injury, and falls causing fracture. Do you think there, that we should be looking as all falls are the same, or do you think we should really begin to look at these subgroups like El Corey did, or does it make a difference at all? Do you think which way would you kind of guide us toward lumping all falls or looking at injurious and, and more costly falls? Which I'm just interested in your opinions on that. That's a really 
important point and I'd just like to say it's my own personal experience of working with people is all falls regardless of a physical injury or hospitalisation can be really detrimental to the individual and you alluded to cost for a hip fracture for instance but I've come across cases where people have fallen and then developed that fear of falling and that's been a, a real detriment to them and they've not wanted to leave the house and not been able to go out to the shops and then there's been having to uh, finance be put on so somebody could go and take shopping to the individual so it's not all necessarily around the immediate cost that may be associated with a fall but obviously those hard outcomes you know, which are devastating, such as admission to hospital figures, whether it be just visiting accident and emergency or whether it be a hip fracture, those are you know, particularly headline features because they are devastating and, and can be fatal. I think preventing all falls is an absolute priority, but I think naturally to the economic costs and modelling, in particular in the short-term period, any intervention in particular that can show it reduces those that cause injury, whether it be a serious injury such as a hip fracture, then those are real attractive to commissioners and other people who will listen to demonstrate that interventions can prevent these serious types of falls. I know very much within the UK is the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy have been highlighting this falls economic model and demonstrated that for every pound spent on physiotherapy that produces a £1.50 return on investment and demonstrating physiotherapy really saves money and helps uh, older people to maintain active lives if uh, interventions and resources are given to prevent falls delivered by physical therapists. That's a gr I would like to have that reference. That's a great reference. <laughs> I'll have to share that one. You'll have to share that with me after this because that that is what we hope. And it's it, I didn't realize that data was out in the UK. I'm glad Brendan mentioned sort of the economic piece in that study because as our core working group progresses from you know having completed the guidance statement and finds a justification for developing a, a formal PT specific clinical practice guidelines. We have a few economic analyses in hands at the level of systematic reviews now as we start to look at those pieces, and that'll be an important feature of understanding this question that you raised. You know, I know that the CDC and the study group and their work certainly places injury into categorizing folks as high risk then. So at least from their perspective, and that information was based off of the British Geriatric Society guideline, which was one of the ones that we reviewed. So injury seems to place people at, in a higher risk category, so it, it takes on a greater importance. But I think Brendan's point about all falls should be the first level of analysis and the first level of intervention. That's very important. I always tell students, I'll just share this with you, and I think I just completely disagree, and I think that people who move are people who fall. And so, to me, the, the consequences of having people not move out of fear of falling, not because of fear of falling, but out of fear because of all the highlighted public awareness of it, I think sometimes is very detrimental to older adults as well. And I appreciate, I definitely appreciate the concept of people who fall and then develop fear of falling, but I sometimes feel like the media and all this attention on falls often offsets some of the people who are on the brink anyway. And I'm one of those people who believes in movement at all costs, and I mm -hmm. want people to move. So 
my father, God bless him, but, you know, here's my dad who falls regularly and just gets up and it's a dad, it's a fall, it's no big deal, get up and keep going. And so there's different philosophies on this. And and I think I I appreciate both of your opinions on this. And I think there is, you know, I think the the world is on your side. They're not on my side. That's for sure. I'm like this. But it's really interesting when you begin to think about perhaps the the policy implications and the costs, which we'll talk about, because it's so hard. Our personal stories play so much into the way we think about this. And I'm assuming policy is always going to be looking at the costs associated with it, which is, um, which is, I guess, good and bad. And so let me just go right into costs and say, what, what do you think we'd need to convince policymakers that physical therapists are integral, really, in reducing the cost of falls? And, Brendan, you cited some study, but was that specifically for falls, or was that just the benefit of physiotherapy for older adults? This is an economic model produced by the Charter Society of Physiotherapy with an economic model demonstrating just exactly how spending a certain amount of money can save money across the NHS and all of the figures are on there so it's been developed by the Charter Society of Physiotherapy taking into account how many falls happen on average in the UK looking at the average cost of a fall in the UK each time and how much investment of physiotherapy could prevent future falls and therefore future costs from preventing those falls. And I can forward the details on for that in due course. You know, policies that relate to screening or assessment, screening is reimbursable service for physicians. It's a quality indicator for physicians and practices participating in the Meaningful Use and Accountable Care Organization initiatives, and uh, assessment is reimbursable service. But these initiatives aren't really specific to physical therapists, and so I think we need to try to help policymakers understand our role in the screening and management process. And so one of the purposes of evidence-based documents, such as clinical practice guidelines or clinical guidance statements, is to sort of put in the hands of policymakers our what we can do and what we should be doing and what the standard for practice is. When you add in economic information and implementation strategies, then I think they're armed with the, you know, the ability to go, oh, okay, this group is is important in this process. So, you know, I think one of the the purposes of the evidence-based documents initiative by the APTA is indeed to not just improve care and quality and consistency and reduce variability, but also to inform policymakers, third-party payers, and folks like that to what we can and should be doing, what our standard of practice should be. You both have listed limitations to your study, as all good authors do, and but you're saying that they're limited to community-dwelling older adults. Do you think your findings would be really different, or how would they be different if we included persons who had stroke? Because you've mentioned that you did not include disease-specific conditions, or persons with Parkinson's disease, or mild cognitive impairment, or any host of disease-specific conditions, congestive heart failure, you name it. What do you think would change in your recommendations or your findings? And I know I'm really asking you to speculate, but I'd like this message from both of your papers to be broadly accepted. And you have to write what you need to write to be accepted as an author, but really, how different would it be? When you draft guidelines, one of the challenges is, as a clinician, to ask the question, does this guideline fit my patient so that I can make a good decision on what to do with this patient. So, yes, we have, and most guidelines are quite narrow, 
And, of course, the challenge there is that many folks come into the clinic or you see them somewhere and they have comorbidities and, and other, other conditions that put them potentially out of the scope of a guideline. You know, one of the things I worry about with including trying to use statements such, uh, and recommendations such as the ones we've provided with persons with neurological conditions is some of the findings related to assessment, for example, that some of the tools that we use to try to identify risk in older persons without neurologic uh, disease, doesn't, the data doesn't fit that of those with neurologic disease. So I think they're quite different. And Can you give me an example? Well, in Parkinson's disease, for example, the, the scores on the Berg balance scale shouldn't be interpreted the same as with the Berg balance scale and community-dwelling older persons. It's conceivable that somebody with Parkinson's disease might, in fact, score a higher score on, on the Berg, but still be at significant risk for falls because of the nature, the neuromechanical factors associated with Parkinson's disease and how it affects potentially stepping function and coordination and balance. There was an intervention that tried to use the typical kinds of interventions that we might use for community-dwelling older adults that have been successful, but it wasn't successful in reducing falls to the extent that we know with community-dwelling older persons. So I suspect they're quite different and need some specific attention to the specific factors. One of the things we don't know in looking at these guidelines and some of the data from the past with respect to cognitive impairment is how many folks in those studies had cognitive impairment and to what extent. As we proceed, our group, into generating PT-specific clinical practice guidelines, we're including mild cognitive impairment in, in our search in trying to understand specifically are there any differences between those with and without cognitive impairment in terms of assessment and treatment for falls. The challenge that we've come across so far, though, is the literature is not very clear as to what they mean by that. And in several studies, several systematic reviews, mild cognitive impairment is included along with uh, dementia. And so there's these levels of cognitive impairment that make it, I think, quite difficult to say this works for this group and this works for this group. So I think that's a challenge going forward. Yeah, I would just like to... Also, state just to, to build on Tim's really helpful comment there that clearly people who have had a stroke or Parkinson's disease, there are um, you know there's an additional risk factor or, or cluster of risk factors which mean that some of the assessment tools such as a timed up and go with a Berg balance tool will not have the same meaningful values to identify someone who is at risk of falls. But that said, some of the interventions which may work, such as the multifactorial interventions, such as identifying those most pressing risk factors for falls, whether it be certain medications or lower limb strength, weakness, and balance impairments or pain, may be similar approach, although the evidence base in terms of randomized controls interventions is developing. So it may be that interventions such as multifactorial interventions and there's a growing body of exercise in stroke and also Parkinson's disease may be affected, but they may obviously have to be tailored to the individual, more specifically to the individual group of people. Unfortunately, many of the randomized controlled trials included in the review that I did excluded people with known major comorbidities such as stroke or dementia. So there's still a lot to be done. But I would put forward a case that 
in instances where, where people may have had a stroke or have Parkinson's disease, there is even more of a need for physical therapists to play a central role in the identification of those most at risk and developing interventions to prevent falls in those groups. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you're both alluding to the fact that these particular subgroups are probably at higher risk, but yet what I'm hearing you describe is you were just saying, Brendan, a multifactorial approach, which is what your umbrella review showed, including exercise and individually tailored, let's say, strengthening exercise, which is something that came out of the guidelines or the, uh, the clinical guidance statement. I see a lot of similarities, I think. I think, again, it's going to be, they'll be somewhat different, but we would still evaluate balance. We would still evaluate gait. We would still, I think the big categories we would still probably look at in these subgroups but how it's individually applied or, you know, sample applied would be different. And I do agree that their risk would most likely be higher because of their neurological conditions. So I guess the future work will be seeing our statements and our umbrella reviews on some of these very common sub-samples um, of older adults who, unfortunately, really do need lots of our services because of all of the impairments and functional limitations that they have. Any parting words for us? From our perspective in the clinical guidance statement, one of the greatest challenges that we faced and that we saw and that we'll try to address in a future clinical practice guideline, and I think is consistent with what Brendan found, was that the studies to date don't give us a whole lot of detail on the frequency, intensity, and type and time of, of the interventions. Uh, specific to groups of individuals, and this is somewhat consistent with what we were just talking about in, in, in the past topic, that we have some general principles, and we know multifactorial approach is important, but the details and what exactly that means across different groups of individuals is still unclear. And that, I think, is an area of, of important area of future work is to try to lay out a bit of detail there. And in, in both our work, uh, you know, the, the Sherrington systematic review was, was one that we used in our discussion and I, I know that Brendan looked at. And, you know, there's some, some general information there about dosage, you know, around 50 hours to try to address it or to make some impact on falls. Um, but what this means specifically going forward for any person at lower or higher risk of uh, non-injurious or injurious falls or persons with stroke or PD or something along those lines. That's, that's the challenge, I think, both in reporting, good reporting and intervention studies, the doing the innovation on that end as well as trying to synthesize this in a way that uh, helps get the folks in the clinic in the ballpark when it comes to interventions. Thank you. Brendan, anything that you would like to add? Uh, just to finish, just to uh, very much agree with what Tim said, really, is I just think the evidence base is continually evolving, but that physical therapists really have a central role within the identification of those most at risk and the prevention of falls. And we couldn't look at optimal uh, frequency, intensity, and type of exercise within our umbrella review, but there is an excellent couple of meta-analysis done by Catherine Sherrington and colleagues and Stephen Lord in Australia, um, which really go into some detail looking at the optimal type and, and length and duration of exercise. And I really believe from this evidence base which has come out that physical therapists really have a central role in preventing falls 
and as we've moved forward to start to develop economic models demonstrating not only the effectiveness of physical therapy but also the cost effectiveness will just be placed more and more central and helping proving older people's lives and preventing falls. Thank you for listening to this PTJ podcast. Are all falls equal? As yet, there are a few details on optimal frequency, dosage, and timing of interventions for certain subgroups such as Parkinson's disease, but the evidence clearly supports a multifactorial approach. And as the evidence and cost-effectiveness research grows, Physical therapists will play an increasingly central role in preventing falls and identifying people who are most at risk. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of APTA.